Daniel 7, 1 through 8, what we just heard Miles read for us. Thank you for reading that. That's going to be our text for this morning. Last week, if you were with us, or maybe if you listened online, uh, we completed chapter 6 and wrapped up the historical narrative section of the book of Daniel. The next six chapters, 7 through 12, are written in a different style called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic literature is, is different from historical narrative in other uh, literary styles, writing styles, if you will. So it must be treated differently. Um, it must be studied differently. And, uh, and boy, did I ever figure that out this last week. Oh, my goodness. I think I spent more time this last week reading uh, than I have in a long time. I, literally all week long, I was reading and reading and reading and reading and reading, and then it came time to write, and I was like, I should have made notes while I was reading, reading, and reading. Uh, so it's a different style of writing. It's, it's unique. It only appears in the Bible in, in a few places, uh, but it's an interesting style, and it has to be dealt with a little differently than as if you were walking through some, some history lesson. Um, I think that before we actually engage in the text, there are several things that, that we should cover. Uh, maybe, firstly, we should define what apocalyptic means or what apocalyptic literature means. And I found a really good definition or description by a guy named John J. Collins. Um, he wrote, Biblical apocalyptic is a revelation of the ending of this present age, which is an age characterized by conflict and its replacement by the final age of peace. It shows us ahead of time of the kingdoms of this world and their replacement by the kingdom of God and of His Christ. This revelation is unfolded in complex and mysterious imagery. You just heard Miles read about some crazy beasts, right? And it has a purpose of comforting and exhorting the faithful. So according to Mr. Collins' definition, um, he basically tells us four things in that little definition of apocalypt uh, about apocalyptic literature. Number one, it has to do with the end of the world as we know it. It has to do with eschatology. It's important to draw the distinction here. Um, apocalyptic literature is prophetic, but it's not just prophetic. It's prophetic in that it has to do with the last things. Uh, you have lots of prophecy in Scripture, but not all prophecy in Scripture deals with the last moments of, of the age. And apocalyptic is specific to that. Apocalyptic isn't just prophetic, it's prophecy in regards to the last things, the last days, or what we would call eschatology. So it has to do with the end of the world as we know it. Remember the REM song that came out? about 1,400 centuries ago. Um, I feel that old. Number two, according to his definition, it has to do with the final kingdom, the final kingdom which replaces all the other kingdoms, every earthly kingdom. So apocalyptic literature is specific to the last final kingdom, if you will. Number three, it employs, obviously, it employs mysterious imagery beasts and things rising up out of the sea and all sorts of things that just kind of tickle our imaginations and, and cause us to say, I have no idea what's going on here, but it's kind of fun to think about. So mysterious imagery is packed into apocalyptic literature, and I think that that is the most intriguing facet, but it can also be the most confusing facet and cause people to go down all sorts of different paths and trying to figure out this image and that image and timelines and all of that. But it does most certainly employ mysterious imagery. And fourthly, it, here's the primary purpose for why it has been given in Daniel and in other places. Okay? The primary purpose is not to cause us to try to figure it all out, to try to exhaust the scriptures and, and other resources to try to figure out the exacts and to figure these things out in precision. That is not the purpose. Now, how many of you have ever attended a prophecy conference or you've noticed that 
a lot of churches seem to be overwhelmingly supportive of that and they run them all the time, right? There's one group that calls itself Christian that I'm not completely convinced is Christian, and that's Seventh-day Adventist, and that seems to be all they focus on are these sorts of things. Um, but we must understand right from the get-go, at least according to Collins, and I think this is my opinion too, the purpose is not to spin us out on those things and to cause us to focus entirely on the mechanism, the minutiae, how it all plays out. That's not the primary purpose of apocalyptic literature. It is to bring comfort and to exhort God's people, okay? So that's the purpose. And, and if you stick to what's in front of you, that will be the goal. That, that's, that will be the result. It will encourage. So that's a pretty good assessment. It's a pretty good definition. According to Daniel chapter 7, his vision here, it is divided into what looks like four parts. And I've taken... Uh, the four parts, and created a sermon series covering the four parts, which I will preach over the course of, Lord willing, four Sundays. Unless, of course, God changes my plan, which He seems to do quite regularly, which is exciting and frustrating. Uh, so, week one, we're going to deal with the four beasts. That's verses one through eight. Week two, we'll deal with the Ancient of Days. Oh, Ancient of Days. Remember that old song? Anyone used to sing that puppy? I think they did it twice every Sunday at Big Valley for five years with Ted Williams singing. Still ringing in my ears. The Ancient of Days, verses nine through 12. Week three, the Son of Man, right? The Son of Man, awesome section. Verses 13 through 14, and then week 4, that's the largest chunk, that's the angel's interpretation, and that is verses 15 through 28, that's the one where we might end up having to treat it with more weeks, but as usual, if you take what's happening in this text and break it up a thousand times, you're going to miss the meeting. So you got to, you know, really I think in some ways this whole chapter is meant to be hit in one shot, but... I can't do that with it. It's too interesting. There's too much stuff going on. But I don't want to lose its meaning. So there you go. That's how we'll come at the text. Now, it's also important to note that Daniel's vision here in chapter 7 seems to, and I, I, I think that it does, but it seems to parallel Nebuchadnezzar's vision in chapter 2. That's something that we looked at, I don't know, months and months ago. You remember how it kind of played out. Nebuchadnezzar saw, an, he had a dream and he saw an image. It was keeping him up at night and he couldn't sleep. And he saw an image of a man or a statue made from several alloys, which represented four earthly kingdoms. The golden head represents Babylon. Um, and and, and that, is, that is clear in the text because Daniel gives the interpretation and says, that's you, Nebuchadnezzar. The other three we're not exactly sure of, but it, it seems like they would be the kingdoms that succeeded and you know, fell right after, came right after Babylon. So we'll say for now the silver shoulders and arms represent Medo-Persia. I think, it's, I think that's the right interpretation, but just in case. The bronze waist and thighs represent Greece, and the iron legs with iron and clay feet seem to represent the Roman Empire and or a future version of it or something that's coming that's like it. The alloys, if you remember, they decrease in value from top to bottom, right? You have gold and then you get all the way down to iron mixed with clay. Gold is the most precious. Silver is pretty awesome. Bronze is decent. Think of the Olympics. Iron, not too great. Stronger than all of them, but not worth as much money as the rest. And, and the idea there is you have this decrease in value and you have this decrease in moral value and in quality of, of kingdom. So that's what the varying alloys represent. You have a decrease in, in morality. You start off where Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom. It's hard to imagine that Babylon was a superior kingdom to any of the others in terms of morality in those things. Uh, but in, apparently in God's eyes, it was... I don't know if it was more moral or it just, you know, more humble to him, <laughs> less prideful, although I'd say Nebuchadnezzar seemed pretty darn prideful, but whatever, God's design, that's how he calls it. One is seemingly better than the others, and you have this decrease 
as it goes down. But I know that it does reflect the, the moral purity. Now the four beasts in Daniel's vision seem to represent the same kingdoms, and in a similar way, they decrease from first beast all the way down to the fourth. They become not less valuable in their alloy substance, because they're not alloy, but they become more beastly. You kind of start out here, and it looks like, well, I kind of get my idea and mind around that. It seems to appear like a man in, in a sense, and then you get all the way down to this last one. It's like, what in the heck is this thing? So you have the same kind of decrease represented here from one type of beast down to one that is just unexplainable. Now, this vision came to Daniel during the first year of King Belshazzar's reign. Okay, that's what it says in verse 1. We learned about Belshazzar in chapter 5. Remember when we studied that, uh, I don't know, seven, eight weeks ago. He was the king who, who mocked and challenged the God of Daniel by drinking from the sacred vessels and who was put to death and relieved of his throne and kingdom by Darius the Mede and Cyrus the Persian. Uh, you might say that Belshazzar was, I don't even know if we might say it, we would say it, he was the last king of Babylon. And Babylon fell the night that he did this act at this big party where he had a thousand of his lords and noblemen and all that. And so he's that king. It was during the first year of his reign... So way before that party, and he did what he did and was removed, way before that, like 13 years or so before that, Daniel got this vision during the first year of his reign. And what's playing out in the, in the background, it helps to gird up and build up the purpose of the vision, again, which is to encourage and exhort. So what's playing out in the kingdom at this time during this first year reign of this king? What, what's going on here? Well, first of all, the Judeans who were brought out of um, Jerusalem and placed into this particular place, they had now been exiled for about 50 years. So they'd been out of their homeland for about 50 years. Back in those days, people rarely even lived to 50 years old. I think the, the average was about 42. They didn't have the medical breakthroughs and things that we have. So they have been out of there, they have been away from Modesto, which seemingly a good thing to me. They have been away, right, amen? They have been away from Modesto and over in Kansas or somewhere else. Kansas is probably better. They've been over there for like 50 years. They've been gone out of their home. Think about that. 50 years. Imagine what that must have been like for them. Imagine what it would be like to be forcibly removed from your homeland from your homes, from your neighborhoods, from your communities, and held captive by an enemy kingdom for 50-plus years. So I'm just trying to give you a little, you know, a little temperature here to show you how the people must have felt at this time. And the, the deal is, is that the Judeans wanted to return back to Jerusalem. They were yearning for their homeland. They wanted to go back. Now... Read Lamentations. Lamentations was written around, well, it was previous to this time, but it gives you kind of a barometer or sense of what the, the emotional climate was like and how God's people felt about this whole situation. And we can add a little more fuel to the fire here in that the Babylonian people despised the Jews who were in their land. They couldn't stand them. We've seen examples of their hostility towards the exiles in chapter 3 and chapter 6, right? Getting them busted, having those guys thrown into the fiery furnace, getting Daniel pinched and thrown into a lion's den. That all reflects the attitude of that empire against those exiled people. And the kings that reigned, and we must understand something as well, none of these kings were really friends to the Judeans. They weren't. I think that Nebuchadnezzar, 
be, he was a little more kosher to, kosher to them and a little more hospitable. But for the most part, they were not friends to the exiles. I know I've painted pretty pictures of Nebuchadnezzar and, and Darius. They seem to get saved and all this. Now they're brothers in Christ. These guys were brutal, brutal kings. They really were. So they weren't really hospitable and friendly to the exiles that were in their land. Those were captives. Those were prisoners, if you will. And here's the deal. During that period between the death of Nebuchadnezzar and the rise of Belshazzar, during that whole period, I would say including Belshazzar's reign, that was probably during the, that exile period, that was probably the worst span of time and experience for the Judeans who were there. It was, just a, it was a miserable, horrible time. They didn't have friends, they didn't have allies, and they had kings that were hostile and people that were hostile. And that was 23 years, almost half the time they were in exile. 23 years of that time up to this point was spent in a hostile, in a hostile situation. So in the midst of that great difficulty, in the midst of what we would call a dark season, if you will, a season of darkness, God shined some light upon his people's situation through the prophetic visions that he gave to Daniel. Okay, so it, it's like that message of hope, that friend that encourages in the midst of a devastating season when you've suffered loss or something tremendous has happened and you are heartbroken and you are hurting that's what's playing out here. And in the midst of that pain and that suffering and that persecution and that hopelessness, God breathes hope and shines light in the form of prophetic visions into His prophet whom He wants to share with His people. So that's the backdrop. That's what's playing out here. I like what um, in do good or do good put it i like how he put it he said this he said apocalyptic literature proclaims a theology understanding or theology that has to do with it has to do with uh, it has to do with an understanding of scripture so it, it, apocalyptic literature proclaims a theology a belief a system of hope to those whom the world has marginalized it reminds us that god is presently on the throne and that he will ultimately triumph. That is the message that God wants his people to receive during this particular time. And that is the message that God wants us to receive and understand during this season of our lives. Okay, so that's the purpose. Good? All right, so you guys ready? So we're going to start to study the text. Let me pray. Lord, thank you for an introduction that gives us a sense of what apocalyptic means and its purpose in bringing hope and showing that you win. We thank you for that. We pray that you would apply that message to us, uh, but firstly, that we would see just how, how it all works and what's playing out in this awesome text. We pray, Holy Spirit, that's why we sang about you before this, that you would reveal the truth to us here. Help us to see it. Help us to to grasp it, help us to believe it, help us to, to live out the implications and message that you have here for us today. We thank you so much for your word. We humble ourselves. We ask that uh, you would help to keep us from becoming distracted uh, by anything and everything and just reveal to us your truth. Make us a little bit more. Just sanctify us and make us a little bit more like Jesus through your word. We thank you so much. We thank you so much. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, guys, let's do it. The plane is taken off. We're about to fly at altitude. We're at 30,000 feet. All right. Don't open the window. Verse 1. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. It says, Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. That's how we're introduced to this whole narrative, if you will, this whole historical event. There is some historicity here. It is historical. But that's how Daniel introduces us to what took place. He starts off with this simple 
um, introduction, King Belshazzar, you know, it's during the first year of his reign. He reigned for 14 years or so. Dan, you know, during his first year as king, Daniel was lying on his bed one evening. He began to doze off. He fell asleep. And while he was asleep, he had a dream, and the dream featured visions, imagery that he saw, that he could, um, I mean, it was just so tangible. It seemed so real to him. And then here in chapter 7, we see that he uh, told the sum of the matter as, as he puts it. He wrote these things down. He recorded these things. And this is his first vision, the first vision that he received. And I must draw a distinction. It's different than the vision that he dealt with in chapter 2. Uh, that was a vision that Nebuchadnezzar received. It came directly to him and Daniel received the interpretation of, not the vision itself right up front. So this is actually, according to Daniel, this is the first vision that came directly to him, not to somebody else that he had to interpret for them. It came to him. It's his first, and I say first because he received three additional visions that we will, Lord willing, look at in chapters 8 through 12. So he received a total of four. This is the first one. Now look at verses 2 through 3. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. Boy, is that interesting. What a, what a vivid description he gives us here. In his vision, Daniel saw four winds of heaven stirring up the great sea. The word translated winds may also be rendered spirits, that is, angels. Elsewhere in Scripture, this word is used to refer to God's providential actions in the affairs of men through angels or the workings of angels uh, to men that are sent from God. So the four winds of heaven that stirred up the great sea may have been four angels from heaven stirring up the sea. That might be the right way to interpret and understand this. Now, throughout the Old Testament, the Mediterranean Sea is referred to as the Great Sea. There were too many references to it for me to list here. If you want to know what they are, I'll get them for you. So, from the start, we can tell that Daniel's vision relates specifically to the Mediterranean world or the Mediterranean region. And it's interesting that our, our brother Paul Rogers just went to Israel and he said, I said, man, that's the place where it all happened. And he said, and that's the place where it's all going to happen again. It's all going to take place there. And that was a total affirmation of, of what I just said. The things that Daniel is talking about in the prophecies and apocalyptic things of that nature, they revolve around that Mediterranean world and region, the area of Israel and those particular lands, that area of the Middle East. And so the Great Sea is the Mediterranean. That's what he envisions here. Those angels are stirring up that sea. As the four winds or angels stirred up the sea, four great beasts arose from the sea or from the water, each one more terrifying than the other. In the Bible, as elsewhere in ancient Near East, uh, in the ancient Near East, the sea was a symbol of chaos and rebellion against God. Okay, so that's kind of how the sea was viewed. It was a, a place of, of great terror and chaos, of rebellion, of monsters, if you will. That's how the people thought of the sea back in those days. And to be quite honest with you, we have our Bermuda Triangle over here. It's pretty mysterious, and things happen over there, and planes disappear and go off the radar, never to be seen again. I, I, I would say even for us in this hemisphere, the sea is a, a place of great mystery and, and, and sometimes terror. Have you ever stood on a, on a shore, on a beach, and looked out and said, wow, this is unbelievable. I would hate to be stuck way out there or... That's a, it's a terrifying thing. It can be, at least. I think it's a place of beauty and mystery. But back in these days, it was the place of monsters. That's how the people thought of it. Psalm 89.9 says, 
You rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. The idea there is that God has mastery over that place of monsters, over that place of chaos. He is sovereign and He even rules over that chaotic sea. Do we not get an example of that during the ministry of Jesus? When the sea is tossing a little fishing boat all over the place and the apostles that are in it are going, Oh my gosh, we're going to drown. Jesus is down in the bow sleeping. Who sleeps during that? The God who rules it sleeps during that. The men who live in it are dying and freaking out. And he gets up and with a word he calms the sea. There it is. For that reason though that the sea was a place of chaos and all that, it was considered to be the natural home of monsters such as Leviathan, the multi-headed monster of ancient mythology. Think of Clash of the Titans, right? Release the cock and... You know, you've seen it. I like the old versions. They're like claymation, you know. They're like, my kids watch them. That's so stupid. They didn't even have the technology today. That they, they didn't have computers back there, guys. I've been trying to tell you this, right? Jason and the Argonauts. Remember Medusa? It's like all like sketchy and, you know, and right? Today it's all overdone and it, it just seems... Li- I thought those other ones were more realistic. But think of Clash of the Titans. You know, the Kraken comes in and it destroys Sparta or wherever that was. That's ancient, that's mythology. Those are the things, those people actually believed in the Kraken. They believed in those kinds of monsters back then. Release the Kraken. Now, these monsters were terrifying, not merely because they were large and dangerous, but because they were thought of as the evil agents of chaos and destruction and totally opposed to God. Okay? So that's the understanding during Daniel's day of beasts and the sea and those sorts of things. That's what people... When, these, when Daniel first began to read to the people or spread it out there and they were reading it, they were thinking, they're cracking! I mean, who knows what they were thinking? This is, this is scary stuff for these folks. In verses 4 through 8, Daniel described the four beasts in detail. These beasts that, you know, the four winds, the four angels are stirring up the Mediterranean. And he describes the four beasts that come up out of the sea. They rise up out of the sea. And we're going to take a look at each of them. Uh, number one, the first one. The first beast is like a lion. Okay, that's, the, that's how he describes it. Verse 4, the first beast is like a lion. And he said, the first beast was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off. They didn't just fall off. It's as if fingers came down like you do to a dragonfly. You pluck them off and then it's sitting around the ground. It can't do its job. These things were plucked off of this beast. They were removed, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was a man was given to it. So that's how he describes it. Now let's just look at each of the words here. Lion. What is the lion? Well, at least in this day, the lion is the symbol of strength and courage. You remember the, even today I think we view it that way, you remember the Wizard of Oz, who, oh, you know, the cowardly lion. Remember him? Remember that guy? Yeah? Well, he wasn't, didn't fit the bill here. Uh, but the lion is typically viewed as the symbol of strength. He's viewed as the symbol of courage. Why? Because he is the chief, he is considered the chief among beasts. And what? The king of the what? That's right, the king of the jungle. It's not, oh, that guy, it's the lion. It's not Tarzan, right? Nebuchadnezzar, now here's what's interesting, is Nebuchadnezzar actually fits in with this description really well. He does. He's actually called the lion in Jeremiah 4.7. So he totally fits this description. Here's the parallel with the vision in chapter 2. In God's eyes... Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon were, in a sense, superior to Medo-Persia, Greece, and the Roman Empire. It's like 
He's the the king over the other kings in a sense, or he's the better king. He's the chief king, and his kingdom is the chief kingdom. That would be the right way to view what's being said here. In chapter 2, what? He's described as Nebuchadnezzar and his kingdom is described as the head of gold. We already know, and I've already said that gold is more valuable than silver, bronze, iron, iron mixed with clay. So there's the parallel to Nebuchadnezzar. He is... The, the beast that is like a lion with the wings that have been plucked off, and we'll get to that. Eagle's wings is the next couple of words I want to look at. They denote a widespread and rapidly acquired kingdom. Think of the arms of God, you know, in uh, Psalm 91, we're shielded under his, under his wings, if you will. The wings are a place of protection, or they kind of give you the idea of something that spreads out over That's the idea here. Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom had a very wide span and he conquered enemy kingdoms very, very quickly. He, he, uh, I, I would say, long before the Germans came up with what's called Blitzkrieg. I don't know if you're familiar with World War II. I know Josh probably is and Paul is, but the Germans developed a an attack strategy called Blitzkrieg, which meant hit your enemy hard and fast and keep hitting them and keep putting resources in. And that caused Hitler to take massive swatches of land throughout Europe very, very quickly, bulldozed Poland and these other countries like it was nothing. He was the Blitzkrieg master. Not really, though, because Nebuchadnezzar was employing Blitzkrieg way before Hitler was ever even born. He would go in, take out kingdoms, enemies very quickly, spread his reach, spread his kingdom. Eagle's wings represents that about Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. His strategy and success was similar to that of Hitler, if you will. I don't like to cite Hitler, but it gives us a visual, I suppose. Plucked off, okay, physically removed. What happened to Nebuchadnezzar when he lost his mind? He lost his throne. He lost his ability to fight, to conquer. When he died, the kings that came after him did not have the same fortitude, guts, military strength. His, once he died, actually once he went insane, when he came back, he only ruled and reigned for like another seven years or so. He never, he, his glory was recaptured, but he did not capture that military might and all those things that he had prior to his humiliation, if you will, and the kings that came after him didn't have it either. So the, the ability to span and reach out and conquer was plucked off, and that began with his insanity, and it never came back. So there's the parallel there. It says, was lifted up from the ground, okay? What does that remind us of? After his humiliation, Nebuchadnezzar was what? As it's described here, made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. Okay, so what happened during his humiliation? Those years he was walking on all fours and grazing like a cow. He became like a beast of the field. His his skin or, or fur or pelt or hair or whatever became wet with the dew of heaven. I mean, he literally mimicked an animal and walked on all four. But when he humbled himself, God brought him off all four and made him stand like a man. And the mind of a beast that he had had for that many years was taken away and his his sanity and mind were restored to that of a man. You see, the parallels are incredible. So I think without a doubt, this first beast represents the golden head, which represents Nebuchadnezzar, okay? Number two, am I going too fast and too hard? Are you cool? You guys handling it? Are you drinking from a fire hose? It really is simpler than I thought it would be. Let's keep going. Number two, the second beast, it says the second beast is like a bear, verse 5 And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. Okay, so this one comes up. He says, It was raised up 
on one side. This is how he describes it. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, so this one had a message communicated to it, Arise, devour much flesh. So, let's analyze it in the same way. Let's study it in the same manner. Bear, let's look at the first key. Bear, bears typically dwell in mountainous regions. And here's the thing about bears. Not only do they dwell in in the higher elevations, but they literally eat everything. When they go to hometown buffet, they eat everything in there. Okay, they don't just pick, I don't know if you go there, I hope you don't. But if you do, you pick certain things, right? Stuff that's less crusty, right? Less saucy. Isn't that disgusting? Reminds me of Vegas vacation when they're at the buffet. I'll have a little more of the yellow. A bear would go into a place like this and eat everything in there and leave, including the people. They eat everything. There is nothing not on the menu of a bear. So they live in mountains and they literally will eat everything. It could be said that a bear is an all-devouring animal. And here's the deal. Medo-Persia was like a bear. Prior to their conquest of Babylon, the Medes and the Persians, especially the Persians, they dwelt in the mountains. They were a mountainous people. You go up to Sonora, they don't even have clocks up there. They're like mountain people. You ask them what day it is, I don't know. Nothing's open on Saturdays. They're like mountain people, the Medo-Persians. They live up there and and they're in the high mountains. I'm reminded of, of some of the stuff that's playing out in Afghanistan. It's a very mountainous region. We have a lot of troops that have bases up in the mountains. They're dwelling at seven, eight, nine, ten thousand feet all the time. That's how these Medes and these Persians were. They were mountain people. I don't know if they felt like higher altitude was, you know, like advantageous to their battle strategies or whatever. Think Red Dawn, right? How they went up in the mountains. They were mountain people. That's what they were thought of. And they were bear-like in their cruelty. They were bear-like in their cruelty. Princes like um, Cambyses and Ochus, those were a couple of, um, I believe they were Persian princes. They literally brutalized people. They were absolutely brutal rulers and princes. They really were. Certain Medo-Persian laws, and we've seen this, certain Medo-Persian laws required the destruction of an entire family and even their neighborhood for one man's offense. So So like Fred, I hope there's nobody here named Fred. Fred commits a crime, and it's a crime that's punishable by death. Not only is Fred executed but his his wife his children if he's got more than one wife because back then that's how they rolled they were all killed and maybe his neighbors would be executed as well we saw something like that in daniel 6 24 didn't we the satraps and the high officials they were thrown into the lion's pit and so were their wives and children so the medes and the persians were like a bear in that they they were like bears in that they were mountain dwelling people Um, And they were, uh, I would say, vicious like a bear. So they were like that. And then another description that's given, uh, it was, the second beast was raised up on one side. This symbolizes the superiority of one of the kings in that kingdom, namely Cyrus. Darius was a vassal king. He was appointed to rule over Babylon after Babylon fell, okay? And he was appointed by Cyrus, which means that Cyrus, he was the Persian king. The Mede king was Darius, but Cyrus was the greater king. And the fact that he appointed Darius shows that he was the one who was the sovereign in that, at that time and in that land. He was the guy that really ruled. He was in control. He was not a vice president. He was el presidente, Right? He, was the, he, he ruled a kingdom, the Persians, it was a larger kingdom, it was a more powerful kingdom. In fact, it was the most powerful kingdom on earth at that time. 
and they brokered a deal where the Medes would join with the Persians. It was probably either that or die. And they joined forces to form one sort of kingdom called Medo-Persia. And that was the largest, most powerful, unstoppable kingdom of its day. Raised up on one side symbolizes the superiority of Cyrus over Darius. Another detail we're given, three ribs in its mouth. This bear had three ribs hanging out of its mouth. I don't know if there was some sweet baby rays up in there. Who knows? That's good stuff. What do those ribs represent? They symbolize the enemy kingdoms Medo-Persia had devoured and destroyed. Okay? The bear had a meal, and it had three ribs sticking out of its mouth. And that meal was probably Egypt, Assyria, and Babylon. Three major empires and kingdoms of that day that this particular kingdom here, Medo-Persia, more particularly Persia, wiped them all out. So those ribs represent their enemies. Number three, so that's the second one, Medo-Persia. We see the parallels. Number three, the third beast is like a leopard. Verse 6, After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. So firstly, we want to look at leopard. What is a leopard? A leopard is, it is a cat. It's a big cat, but it's smaller than a lion, and it's certainly more swift. It's certainly more agile. And lions can be pretty stealthy, but they can weigh about 500 pounds, so they cannot be stealthy. Leopards are very, very stealthy. And when they hunt, uh, it, it has to do with hiding and being well camouflaged and storming the prey, jumping out on it when that prey least expects it, gets it in the grip, goes for the juggler throat, chokes it out, drags it up into a tree, hometown buffet. So the leopard is known as being fast and, and, and agile and very, very stealthy. The leopard does, I think, in many ways reflect Alexander the Great, who started out as a small king over a small kingdom. Does anyone know what it was originally called? Macedon. Later, he was able to basically unite all of Greece under his throne, which then it was always kind of called Macedon, but it was also called Greece, too. And when we think of this third beast and kingdom, we think of Greece and we think of Alexander the Great. He ultimately at that time became the greatest, most powerful king on earth and, and in my opinion is still probably one of the greatest kings. And when I say greatest, I don't necessarily mean because he was moral and a good guy. I mean that because of his might, muscle, speed, this guy, it's incredible to think that our military commanders today study ancient docks and things from this particular man to learn how to fight and battle an enemy. Uh, what was his name that did it during the Gulf Wars? Schwarzkopf? Schwarzkopf was a brilliant military commander, and guys like him, they're, they're, they're not stupid, and they study history, and they look at military leaders and, and military successes from the ancient times. And I tell you what, one of the guys that comes to mind are these dudes is Alexander the Great. He was incredible. Not only was he able to defeat the Medo-Persian Empire, which was much larger at the time than his own empire, that military was much larger, but he literally subjugated parts of Europe and most of Asia. He conquered a lot of territory in that region. Not mentioned in the text, but I think worthy of mention, is the fact that leopards are spotted right? They have spots. It's part of their camouflage. They're not mentioned here, but we know that they have spots. And, and some think that and believe that the spots of the leopard uh, may reflect the various nations that Alexander the Great incorporated into his kingdom or variations in his character. I think that might be more accurate. At times he was mild. At times he was cruel. And at times he was drunk and licentious. 
Four wings are mentioned here. The lion in verse 2 featured two wings, which symbolized Nebuchadnezzar's speed and spread, if you will. The leopard, however, features four wings, which means that Alexander was faster and his kingdom was more widespread. Four heads represent the dividing of Alexander's kingdom after his death. The Macedonian Empire, Greece, if you will, uh, in a sense, was split into four smaller kingdoms with four rulers. Macedon and Greece, that particular region, were given to Cassander, Thrace, and Bithynia were given to Lysimachus, I guess, I don't know how you pronounce it. Egypt was given to Ptolemy, and Syria was given to Seleucus. Uh, Dominion was given to it, that's another phrase that's here. The idea is that God gave the leopard beast, Alexander, dominion or control. So whenever we think of kings and kingdoms, we need to know that they are appointed and raised up by the true sovereign king, by God himself. And so this dominion and this vast kingdom and territory, this vast rule was given to this king. And and the same thing should be said of all earthly kings and kingdoms. God is the true sovereign over all earthly sovereigns, and He alone grants and gives dominion, and He does so in accordance with the counsel of His own will and according to His own purposes. So, dominion was given to it. For the fourth beast is like nothing Daniel had ever seen. That's my description. I mean, he's looking at this thing and he doesn't know. He's like, what is going on here? Verse 7 After this, I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. He says it was terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. You know, it's it's almost like mechanized, like an at-at, you know, in Star Wars. It's just crushing everything under its feet. He says it was different from all the beasts that were before it. And then he says it had ten horns. Instead of likening the fourth sea monster, if you will, to some known animal, Daniel simply calls it a beast. I mean, he, he doesn't know what to make of it, really. He can only describe its features. But he can't, he can't call it a leopard or a lion or a bear. He just can't do it. Apparently, it was a mongrel composed of parts of a lion and maybe parts of a bear and parts of a leopard. It may be the same beast, I think probably it is, that the Apostle John described in Revelation 13 too. He wrote, the beast I saw resembled a leopard and it had feet like those of a bear and a mouth like that of a lion. The dragon gave to the beast his power and his throne and great authority. So maybe a parallel there to Revelation 13, and I think the key to understanding, rightly understanding Daniel 7, this vision is is understanding in some sense, and to some degree, Revelation 13, they're, they're tied together. So this fourth beast was more terrifying, dreadful, and powerful than the three preceding beasts, uh, which were all ferocious and destructive. This beast had great iron teeth with which it was able to crush and devour its prey. Uh, The kingdom represented by this mongrel beast uh, had been, or had previously, I should say, had previously swallowed up the other kingdoms that are mentioned here, the lion, the bear, and the leopard. That's the idea here, that it replaces the others. It chews them up and spits them out. It stamps out what is left, if you will. Daniel described it as being different from all the beasts that were before it. One of the differences that it had, as he says, ten horns. It was a ten-horned beast, if you will. But more than that, the ten horns, what do the ten horns remind us of? They remind us of the ten toes in chapter 2, verse 41. Back then, remember when we studied that? You had that statue, and then you had the iron legs, and then you had the feet, and you had the ten toes that were a composite of iron and clay mixed. Now, if you drop down to verse 24 of our chapter, you will see that the ten horns represent ten kings. 
Okay, and I don't want to go much further than that because I don't want to spoil it. Here's the question that came to mind for me. Does the fourth beast represent the kingdom that came after Greece or Macedon? Does the fourth beast represent the Roman Empire? And I think the answer is yes and no. I think it's yes and no. And you're saying it has to be one or the other, Pastor Phil. No, it's a yes or no. Yeah, the answer is yes and no. Uh, I would say that the Roman Empire was by far the most terrifying, dreadful, and powerful kingdom of this group, the most devastating beast of the beast. It was also the most corrupt and immoral, so there's the parallels of what's going on there with morality. When the Roman Empire fell to northern barbarians in the 5th century A.D., They did not unite to form another empire. They didn't revise the Roman Empire, if you will, or put together another one. Instead, individual nations emerged out of the old Roman Empire. Some theologians say that these emerging nations represent the ten horns or ten kings. I'm hesitant to agree with them. Before plugging the Roman Empire into this fourth slot, we must consider several facts, okay? Number one, the Roman Empire is gone. It's gone. The only thing that we see are ruins. That's the only thing that remains. It's it's gone. It's been wiped off the face of the earth. And you must remember what apocalyptic literature deals with. What does it deal with? Not just prophecy, but end-of-days prophecy. So if the Roman Empire is gone, how can it play a role in the end Times in the last days. How can it play a role if it's gone? Some might argue that it's not completely gone, that there are traces of it. That might be true. I'm not going to go to war with somebody who takes a different theological view. But I say, in my opinion, it's gone. So it doesn't have a role in eschatology. It doesn't have, it's not part of the apocalyptic. Secondly, the Roman Empire did not achieve what the angel described in verses 23 through 25. If you fast forward down a little bit, you'll see some description there given by the angel in the interpretation. Uh, The Roman Empire did not devour the whole earth. It did not. It devoured all of the territories around the rim of the Mediterranean Sea. It did go into parts of southern Europe. It did reach as high as Britannia, but it didn't even subdue other kingdoms like Germania, Germany. There were other kingdoms within Europe that it did not touch. And it did not go over into Asia where we see China and Russia today. It, 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 did, it didn't come even close to devouring the entire world. It didn't. It didn't come anywhere near it. it. In fact, it only took parts of northern Africa. The rest of the continent remained untouched. So it, it, it's not right to say that the Roman Empire conquered the entire world. There were vast regions and countries and empires that that were not affected by the Roman Empire. They were affected by its commerce and positive things, but they were not affected by its military might. Vast sections of Asia and Africa were never touched by them. So there's two reasons. Three, the Roman Empire was never ruled by ten kings. Never. It was ruled by dozens and dozens of emperors. Is that a play on words? Could a king and an emperor be the same thing? Could they be synonymous? Possibly. But if you go and do any research on it and look up the emperors that ruled over Rome before it was even divided and split up into the western part and the eastern and all that, it had dozens and dozens of empires. So it it just doesn't fit the profile. It doesn't fit with apocalyptic. It doesn't fit with the king's. It doesn't fit with the, with the spread and devouring the entire world. Here's my theory. This is my theory. And most eschatology is theory. Because some things in Scripture are lucidly clear and others are, just aren't because we're dealing with imagery and pictures and things. It's tough to get around. But here's my theory. I believe the Roman Empire is an expression of the fourth beast, a representation of the fourth beast. It shows us what the fourth beast and final kingdom 
will be like, okay? It will be like the Roman Empire. It will be terrifying. It will be dreadful. It will be powerful. But at a level the world has yet to see. At a level that the world has yet to see. It will, as the angel said, devour the whole earth, not just the Mediterranean region and parts of Europe. Now here's the deal. We see the king of this kingdom. We see a glimpse of him in verse 8. As Daniel examined the ten horns, something caught his eye. Look at it with me. He says, I considered, he's looking over the ten horns. I considered the ten horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. So among the ten horns there arose a little horn. The little horn uprooted three of the previous larger horns and took their place. The little horn was different from the others. It had eyes like that of a man, and it could speak great things. The little horn here represents the king of the fourth and final kingdom. He is, in a sense, the fourth beast. Some theologians say that the little horn is Antiochus Epiphanes, the Seleucid king who brutally opposed the Jews in the mid-2nd century B.C. It can't be him because he is dead and gone and therefore does not fit in with apocalyptic. Others say that the little horn represents the popes uh, or even the ten horns and the little horn represents the papacy of the Roman Catholic Church. It can't be the papacy. It can't be the popes because they are not kings and they do not rule over kingdoms nor will their expansiveness ever cover the entire earth, although it seems close to it. The truth is, no historical king or ruler has ever possessed the kind of power and rule the fourth king, the fourth beast, will possess. No earthly king has ever had the power and rule an influence that this one has. Never, ever happened before. Even to date, to our day today, it has not happened yet. In fact, the Bible ascribes this unprecedented power and rule to only one earthly king. And history literally, literally proves that he has not yet come. Who is this king? Who is the little horn? He is the Antichrist. He is the final earthly king. Listen to the parallels between the little horn and the Antichrist. The little horn will speak great things. The Antichrist will speak great things. Revelation 13, 5. Remember how I said the key to understanding Daniel 7 is really in Revelation 13? Revelation 13, 5 says, The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemies. There's the great things that that little horn will speak. Another parallel. The little horn will exercise unprecedented power and rule. The Antichrist will exercise unprecedented power and rule. Revelation 13, 7. And it was given authority over every tribe, every people, every language, and every nation. No earthly king has ever had that level of dominion. Ever. But he's coming, and he will. I believe the little horn and the Antichrist are the same. They are synonymous. Let's wrap it up. I do not want to end our time with the Antichrist. I don't want to give him that kind of focus. And so I want to personalize. And I want you to think in terms of, of what's going on with you. The question I have for you is this. What beasts are you dealing with today? Are you talking about all these beasts and all this? That's fascinating. I, I get it. We win. That's wonderful. What does that mean for me today? Well, it could mean what I'm telling you now. What beast are you dealing with today? What beast is holding you in its grip? Is holding you in its power? Is it the beast of addiction? 
That's a beast. That's a monster. That's a scary monster. Is it the beast of anger? Is it the beast of worry? The beast of anxiety? That is a, that is a terrifying beast. Is it the beast of fear? That you're just frightened over everything and the things that are happening and, and maybe the, the possibilities of certain things happening. And, you know, I don't know what that medical visit's going to be like or I, I, don't know, I don't know what the results are going to be. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with my job. I, I don't know. There are a lot of beasts. Here's the deal. I don't want to get down into our text anymore because I want to save that. And I think it's okay to look back a little bit at chapter 2. Back in chapter 2 with that vision of that statue and all that. What flew in and struck the statue's feet and crushed those feet, causing the whole world system and kingdoms to come crashing down was the stone that had not been built by human hands. The king of kings, that stone that brought down all the kingdoms of the world, he is also the son of man who slays all of the beasts of the world, including Antichrist. I don't know what kind of beast you're dealing with today, but I want to encourage you to turn it over to Jesus. Let him deal with your beast. Turn it over to the dragon slayer. He has the power to do it. If he can subdue the nations, he can subdue your beast. 